Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. This is episode number 35. We are talking about air power and air power theory today. Joining me, my colleagues from the strategy, from the, uh, the U.S. Naval War College. Um, first, Dr. Andrew Stiegler uh, from the uh, National Security Affairs Department. Andy, welcome. Uh, Thanks, great to be here. Awesome. Uh, next, Dr. Tim Schultz, who is the Associate Dean of Academics uh, for the college. Tim, welcome. Thanks, John. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Phil Hahn, who is our Dean of Academics at the Naval War College. Phil, welcome. Thanks a lot, John, for the invite. Good deal. All right, so I thought we'd start out talking about uh, air power theory. So uh, just like we have in the in the other domains, we have a, a, a theorist that a lot of times we go to to start out the discussion. And in this case, for air power, it's Guglio Duhay, an Italian who in the 1920s wrote a book called Command of the Air, where he, he theorized that um, from what he saw in World War I, that the advent of air warfare and the bomber and being able to bomb cities meant that um, you know, the bomber would always get through and you could destroy cities from the air with a combination of high explosive and, and chemical weapons and you could force capitulation of, of a nation without having to necessarily have, uh, have the ground forces. And want to talk about that and then how it influences our, our outlook today. Uh, Phil, is that an accurate description, you'd say? Yeah, yeah, John, you do a pretty good description of, of Duhay's theory of um, strategic bombing. Uh, and the point that you make about WMD is the, the essence of Duhay is he thinks that there's this new destructive power that's different than before. And uh, I know you got a couple more questions about Duhay and World War II, but I will point out that most people focus on the conventional use of strategic bombing to criticize Duhay. But really, uh, we're talking modern day, um, really Duhay's most relevant for discussions on nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. Because what Duhay says and Bernard Brody in Strategy in the Missile Age emphasize is that Duhay was ahead of his time. He really didn't have the atomic weapon or nuclear weapons to give that extra extreme punishment. And so the other aspect of Duhay is he acknowledged that uh, air power is uh, offensive uh, but he really doesn't acknowledge that you can't really stop it on both sides. And so deterring airstrikes, uh, particularly during the Cold War, becomes the essence or the inability to deter airstrikes becomes the essence of what becomes known as mutually assured destruction. That if you have uh, air power with the ability to destroy your opponent's cities, uh, as Duhay talks, then you don't have to win wars. You instead deter wars. 
And so really the, the relevance of Duhay is not necessarily how it plays out in World War II, although that often is the heat of the criticism, but how Duhay's theory is used today as secure second uh, strike today with the US military forces, particularly the nuclear forces, is what deters great power uh, wars, a third uh, world war. And I'll hand it over to the other two discussions to add on. Okay, great. Yeah, Tim, let's go to you next. Yeah, just uh, Duhay is endlessly fascinating, I think, and and he continually comes up. And uh, Phil, I think you have a book coming out about him as well, based on some research. Um, so it's kind of ironic as we look at him as a historic figure, and he gets us to think uh, in some important ways about air power, not always necessarily uh, correct. But his kind of philosophical point of view is that you can't learn much from history. He was more of a forward looking person, more interested in the present and the future and kind of rejecting some of the, the classical ideas about the past uh, in favor of this this new technology, a, a game changing technology. And that's uh, kind of a siren song um, that we need to be to be wary about. Um, he said uh, that clinging to the past will teach us nothing about the future. And that's something that we kind of reject at the Naval War College with our curriculum that is both timeless and timely uh, by studying some of the classics uh, all the way back to Thucydides because we recognize still the importance of that past regardless of the technology of the future. So Duhay helps us kind of tease out that idea as well. Awesome. You've both said things that generate follow-on questions in my mind, but I'll go to Andrew next. Yeah, I uh, agree with both my colleagues. I think Phil puts it very well. Duhay was uh, developing his theories at a time when uh, air power was in its infancy. I'd also point out, just from a psychological and analytical perspective, anti-aircraft uh, defenses essentially did not exist as he was engaging in his theorizing. I think that's worth keeping in mind. Um, it was very difficult to fuse anti-aircraft artillery uh, at, at the early stages of development. Uh, one of the early uh, devices developed in 1925 was called the Predictor Number no. 1, uh, which was a essentially a uh, an early computer that attempted to discern where an aircraft was likely to travel, anticipate that, and fuse the shell accordingly. It didn't work that well. But uh, that just illustrates the challenges that were present in Duhay's time. So it's not surprising that he succumbed to over-optimism about the conventional applicability of air power. However, as Phil points out, um, weapons of mass destruction, that's a, a whole uh, new kettle of fish, is, essentially. Um, I would point out, it's interesting, and I know we're going to get to Ukraine later. There are reports that Ukraine successfully shot down one of Russia's more sophisticated hypersonic missiles. And that could be a very interesting development in terms of uh, air defenses, which is uh, Ukraine is essentially a testing ground right now for our most modern air defenses, and we will see how that plays out. But uh, yes, I think in his time, Duhay was wildly optimistic. He had his many detractors at, uh, as he wrote his theories, as my colleagues know. And um, the only question is, does he apply to the more uh, serious uh, element of weapons of mass destruction? Mm. Interesting. So, so the, the, 
the thoughts that that jumped to mind, uh, you know, uh, so Phil, you, you talked about the the nuclear aspect, and then Tim, you mentioned the technology aspect, is that that uh, as a given, in terms of conventional, do you think his theories have also kind of bled into um, Air Force doctrine today in terms of oh, the concept of the bomber will always get through, and we can win the war from the air? and force capitulation and, and, you know, we don't even need ground troops. Um, I might've actually heard that from, a, from an Air Force officer at one point over, over at theater. Uh, but uh, you, do you think that bleeds into our thinking today in terms of what we can do, we, what we can and can't do from the air in the, in the contemporary realm that Phil has got to start this one with you? Uh, yeah, so uh, that was clearly the case in the 1990s after Desert Storm and how air power played a, a really, um, a dominant role, uh, much less so since uh, uh, 911 and the types of wars that have been fought since. I will say that before you can talk about conventional war, you have to understand how the shadow of nuclear war affects the types of wars that are actually fought. So think of the Vietnam War. Invasion of North Vietnam is off the table. Why? Concerns over escalation. So does Duhay theory apply in Vietnam? It does in the sense that it shapes the type of limited wars that we actually fight. And so we can't just forget about that and look at the actual wars that we fight. Now to your question, with conventional weapons and given um, certain norms of Western powers that limit the amount of punishment can that it can actually be imposed, then for the most part, for the level of demands that are being re uh, required or demanded upon states, uh, no, there's, you're not able to get enough punishment like Duhay suggests. There's limits that prevent that. Now, is uh, I, I would bring up there there is one exception to the modern air wars, and that's uh, Kosovo. And Andy has written extensively, as have I, about that being a very unique case where it appears that punishment, or at least in terms of uh, targeting um, Serbian infrastructure did cause uh, capitulation, uh, along with some other non-military factors. Uh, so uh, as to this, will air, air power win wars by themselves? Um, you know, that has a little bit of uh, service parochialism to it that I don't find with the Air Force officers that are the current officers that we teach here at the Naval War College, mainly because most of them have been involved in joint operations since day one. And so they're not no longer brought up in the era in which I and Tim were brought up within the Air Force, where there was still the service, um, um, service. It, it's a new service. It hasn't really found its place. It was founded on strategic bombing as its justification for being. And I think it's just taken a while for the service to kind of get over that. Uh, and, and I think largely it has. I'll let uh, uh, Tim and Andy add on. I, I realize it's a loaded question to two former Air Force uh, colonels, but uh, you know, <laughs> Tim, go ahead. Well, I think there still is that idea out there sort of that drifting around in the Air Force uh, that Yes, there is an expectation that air power will always get through, the bomber will always get through, maybe in more modern times, the drone will always get through, or the swarm will always get through. Um, we will be able to achieve those 
exquisite effects at the right place at the right time. And there's this institutional expectation internally. And, and I think that the institution um, senses from its uh, sister services, this constant ability to be on that leading edge, to do that, it can be taken uh, to an extreme if you're thinking in a limited way that, okay, this would be the, um, you know, the end all be all, this would be the decisive use of technology. Um, so there are layers of assumptions there. In a sense, it's healthy to have this, I think this optimism and this confidence that this part, this domain has to be exploited uh, intelligently. Uh, we want airmen to, to cultivate that idea, but they have to do it in this all domain joint environment. And I, I concur with Phil. I think the Air Force institutionally has turned that corner and does perceive things in a little more of a, a joint aspect than in a, than in previous decades. Okay. Uh, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Uh, my impression of the Air Force officers that I teach is that they understand exactly what the Phil and Tim were talking about. Uh, I'd point out one example, the 1991 Gulf War, Colonel John Warner developed a plan that relied almost entirely on air power, involved a series of concentric rings re representing aspects of Iraqi governance and society. And that plan was rejected when it got to Colin, Colin Powell and others who said this is not convincing. And uh, in fact, they uh, uh, downplayed it in briefs to senior leaders in Washington, D.C., so even as early as 1991, uh, there was skepticism about the ability of air power to, alone to achieve goals. And uh, Phil mentioned the air war over Kosovo. We can certainly talk more about that. Uh, he's absolutely right. This is the one example where it appears air power alone, isolated from any uh, ground threat, achieved a strategic aim. And uh, a very rare example at that. Um, uh, everywhere else where air power has even been attempted, there's either been an important ground component or some credible threat of a ground component to follow. And uh, that's that's an important distinction. However, there's a there are reasons to think that that one case is an exception. I would argue we were lucky that Milosevic gave up when he did. It wasn't clear that that would happen. Um, there was also a reversal in uh, Russian diplomacy that was a, a key factor, other things that we could point to. But uh, I, uh, I do agree with uh, my uh, colleagues that uh, there's, I get the impression there's strong skepticism in the Air Force today of the capability of the air component to independently achieve major strategic aims. Hmm. So uh, that, that uh, follow-on question jumps to my mind when you, when you make that example any um and you've written about this and so correct me if i'm wrong but if i remember correctly wasn't it two years prior to kosovo that when the entire former yugoslav war was going on we were bombing serbia but it was the influx of croat ground forces that that forced them initially to the peace table is that is that Right. It's uh, complex. And uh, also the air campaign there was not uh, nearly as robust as what we eventually did uh, over Kosovo. But that was that was the lesson that we learned. And we thought that Milosevic does give in to bombing and ignored the uh, ground threat from Croats and, and others. Um, and, uh, you know, it turned out that was the lesson that was uh, inappropriately applied in 1996. 
we actually went into that campaign not necessarily expecting that Milosevic would give in to our demands promptly. Uh, there are accounts from some senior leaders that three to five days of bombing, even if that didn't work, we could end that and say, well, we've taught him a lesson. But the problem is that uh, Milosevic instead dramatically increased his actions against Kosovar Albanians. Instead, instead of tens of thousands of Kosovar refugees, we had close to 900,000. And suddenly NATO found itself committed to a conflict it, it had not fully understood. Um, but uh, that's correct. It's an example of a lesson inappropriately applied. Uh, we, we, in effect, stumbled into victory. So that's another reason not to use as a, as a template for future conflicts. Tim, go ahead. Yeah, uh, just circling back to this notion about um, this expectation of what technology can do for you and how for once upon a time, and maybe still to some degree, it had this allure for the air power institution. I'm wondering, are we going to see that with other services in terms of their increasing ability to project power through the air with drones, with HIMARS, with crew mis cruise missiles? How will that shape their expectations of what they can do, where, where they can have decisive effects? And they'll have to be careful about their thinking as well, just as the Air Force needs to be careful about its expectations for for this technology that it's increasingly kind of uh, um, blending together. Those two, that Venn diagram is, uh, is has some increasing overlap. So the, the the thing I think about when you when you say that is um, we talk about the concept of theory of victory um, and how one wins and this concept. And I'm glad you mentioned the John Warden five rings theory, uh, Andy, because um, that's one of the things we talk about as well in terms of the 1990 Gulf War case. But I have heard that very same thinking conceptually from it wasn't an Air Force. I was a special operations um, uh, type people over when I was in part of the defeat ISIS mission of, hey, if we just take out this guy and this guy, you know, the head, the, the, the main ring, then falls down like a house of cards, right? Which, you know, we know that that, that doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. But it seems that thinking, that theory of victory of if I hit the main, you know, ring number one or, or whatever it is, the, the leadership, then everything else just kind of, um, uh, you know, we win the war. We're, we're looking for that uh, that knockout blow, that checkmate. Um, is that is that possible to do with air power, with a drone strike, with with as you said, te technology? Tim, why don't we start this one with you? Yeah, I I think um, yeah that there there will remain that lure out there uh, with different um, different institutions, different services, um, different uh, military planning shops. Um, but I think you have to be cautious because you still need to take into account all of the other contextual factors and the political context and things like that. But it's where the technology will cause some of that argument and that that thinking to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting. It, it, to me, it's just uh, uh, kind of actually fascinating to see how that thinking develops outside of the Air Force, like with special operators or maybe others. Um, you know, we, we've we've been there before and uh, this is kind of a, a rhyming uh, type of effect because the bottom line is we need to be cautious about what our expectations of technology are keep in mind that there's always 
a measure and countermeasure race and those expectations have a shelf life. Absolutely. Uh, Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to give credit to cycle back to something Tim said earlier. Uh, the phrase, the drone will always get through, might be one that we would want to pay more attention to. Um, the phrase, the bomber will always get through, was uh, originated by from Stanley Baldwin in 1932. And the title of his speech was Fear of the Future. And I think that might be worth keeping in mind when we think about drone technology. We're all familiar with um, the mysterious drone attacks on the Kremlin that were executed recently. Um, a drone attack on an Iranian facility recently that uh, was video recorded. Um, that's a very flexible technology. Um, one of the huge advantages of drones is that uh, you can launch them from virtually anywhere. They don't have to fly into enemy airspace from the same distance that aircraft do. And so that's uh, these are reasons to be concerned with that new technology. Uh, as I'm sure we all know, we've been experimenting with counter drone technology for at least a decade. And uh, after the experience in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians have used drones with considerable effectiveness and ingenuity, um, it uh, we will we will see what the future holds in store. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, Phil, any thoughts on this? Well, so um, to your original question, we, we do have to look at, uh, while I agree with it's very difficult to decapitate uh, enemy regimes, primarily because of the intelligence requirement to actually do that. It's very difficult to get the intel to take them out. Uh, a lot of the criticism against these strikes have been political, about blowback, about international pushback. But now we've had uh, a while to see that, and I know Tim has done some research on this and published on this, um, but it doesn't appear to be as great a level of pushback. And we're starting to see that there have been some uh, positive outcomes. In other words, um, you, particularly against non-state actors, state actors using drones, we've seen a change in behavior, a difficulty to operate. Leaders should go into... Um, uh, remote areas, or you think about Osama bin Laden, his inability to actively lead, that has an effect. Uh, even taking out Osama bin Laden, the intelligence was what was important, and that was done by drones, as well as some human intelligence. It wasn't the actual operation that was the most important. We could have taken them out with, uh, we, we chose special forces, but we had bombers on site for a variety of reasons. We, I think, correctly uh, chose the SEALs. But you know, once Osama bin Laden was taken out, um, that actually freed up a lot of political and, and um, uh, diplomatic space for the U.S. to make shifts, such as getting out of Afghanistan or reducing their priority uh, on Al Qaeda. So it's not just about uh, winning wars, and we have to be care very careful about what we mean about theory of victory and winning wars. As you well know, wars are very different: limited wars versus. Um, Total or uh, absolute wars or total wars. Uh, normally what we're talking about here are some type of limited wars where the theory of victory is coercive, whether it be punishment strikes to try to get concessions or denial, which is trying to reduce your enemy's hope of victory um, or risk type strategies. Those are the mechanisms that we're talking about. And so we're largely talking about success or failure not whether or not we win a particular uh, uh, conflict. Mm. So the is the way we use the instrument of air power in terms of 
um, both both a theory of victory in order to achieve that political aim and and the decision for war. My question is, do we use it in the in the proper way? Because and I'll make a bridge here to our to our uh, our naval domain. Uh, you know, Al-Fatih Mahan talks about using sea power to destroy the enemy's sea power and then economically choking them and then, you know, forcing them into, into capitulation. Right. But Sir Julian Corbett or other naval theorist looks upon it as like, well, you know, you have local sea command, but you really use the Navy as an enabler to achieve a political decision on land because people live on land, not at sea. Is, is, you know, is our thinking about air power, uh, I mean, should it, should it be somewhat similar in the sense it is enabler to achieve a political effect on land because limited wars are supposed to end at the peace table or, uh, Phil, we'll, we'll start this one with you. Yeah, so we're at the Naval War College, so we have the luxury of uh, studying multiple naval theorists. If you're at the Air War College, we would study multiple air theorists. So Duhay is the one that gets brought up because he's the first and he's, to be quite honest with you, is the easiest to attack in terms of uh, the histories that we study. Uh, but if you want to study uh, more modern air power theorists, you would you, you would be studying Bob Pape, Bombing to Win, who argues instead for uh, combined arms denial as the mechanism which which is air power is most effective. So yeah, if you only look at uh, Duhay and that's the only theory that you consider, then you have issues. But you've just contrasted Mahan and Corbett, which you give the the maritime domain. And if you do the same thing, the air domain, you get more options. Mm. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with that book, Bombing to Win. So that, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. But uh, Tim, any thoughts on this? one? Yeah, I just been thinking about uh, how people perceive the utility of military technology, air power specifically, and a key purpose of the Air Force of air power technology is to create options for military leaders, whatever those might be. It might be the projection of hard power or soft power or some forms of influence. Um, those That idea is informed by different uh, theorists, like theorists like Mahan and Corbett. Um, but modern technology is, is, I think, pretty unique in terms of creating this broader spectrum of options for those political leaders. Um, we uh, mentioned earlier the use of drones and this issue of blowback. And when you uh, hit a terrorist, are you creating more terrorists by uh, by creating resentments, you know, in the, uh, in the local community or not? Um, that's an important question, but I always tell my students when it comes to air power and bombing something, you always bomb for an audience. It's one, and I, I joke around, I say that is Tim's first rule of air power. When you bomb, you bomb for an audience. It's not just the people in the vicinity of the kinetic effect. It is the audience um, of your allies, your coalition partners, and critically your domestic audience and your whole political architecture as well. Um, you're trying to signal and send messages uh, to a variety of different organizations, peoples, nations, you know, cultures, audiences. Um, so there's this allure, this attraction of technology to do that, but that's what makes it, uh, it requires us to have even harder thinking about what the use of this technology means. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, Andrew, go ahead. 
Yeah, just a word on Bob Pape's uh, book. Uh, it is certainly very prominent. I'd point out the uh, conclusion of the title, though, is Air Power and Coercion in War. He's interested in what coerces states. And I'm reminded of that, as Tim is talking about, uh, quite rightly, the need to communicate to audiences. Uh, Bob Pape's argument is that denial, that is defeating an enemy's strategy, is, has the highest likelihood of coercive effect. But uh, again, you're trying... If you defeat a strategy, you still are dependent on convincing the target that they want to be coerced. This is the challenge Ukraine is encountering in, in its own country right now. Uh, you could make a pretty strong argument that uh, Vladimir Putin's initial plan, initial strategy has been defeated. He's not going to conquer Ukraine. And we'll find out if he holds on to the oblasts in the east that he has taken control of or partial control of. But we have to convince Vladimir Putin that that is the case, even if his strategy has been defeated. And that's where a lot of people get pessimistic about whether that is an audience, you know, Vladimir Putin, an audience of one uh, that can be convinced to reverse course. And so it's that very nebulous and challenging endeavor of trying to predict how the target will respond to the use of air power that makes it difficult to use it as an independent coercive instrument. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said earlier in Kosovo, we were lucky. Milosevic changed his mind. He didn't have to. Just like uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, no matter how effective the Western-supported Ukrainian forces are, does not necessarily have to change his mind. That doesn't mean we have the wrong strategy. It's just a caveat that we absolutely have to keep in mind in the months to come. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I want to pull the thread on that, but starting with, um, so we have a number of examples that we study, not just in the SP course, but in, in all of the, the Naval War College curriculum in terms of case studies of um, strategic bombing, as well as a more combined arms tactical bombing. And it seems like starting with World War II um, up through, you know, call it today to the um, uh, current conflicts, Air power and the use of strategic bombing has almost had the opposite effect in terms of in terms of coercion of populations, with the exception, obviously, the the Koso one that we talked about before. But World War II, in the in the sense of the Germans try to bomb Britain, it it increases their morale instead of instead of decreases or increases their resolve. Um, we bomb Germany, it doesn't force capitulation. We bomb Japan, atomic bomb, arguable, but you know they still fight on very long time. Um, so this this concept of the use of strategic bombing to force capitulation and force someone to the peace same thing with north vietnam as you mentioned you know increase their resolve um is what do you know what do we think about is, is this the right model or is the combined arms approach the better model in terms of in terms of theory of victory to win yeah. so, go, go ahead. so i'll jump in here and so i i have to say i normally criticize duhay and I normally criticize strategic bombing, but we have to at least give it some due. So Duhay, when he wrote Command of the Air, if you read it, he writes that he writes it for the Italians. He's not writing it for another nation. And he was and, right, yeah. And the only nation that yeah. capitulates in World War II to strategic bombing is Italy, which you didn't mention. Right. July 1943, yeah. <laughs> Mussolini gets taken out of the power after Rome is bombed. Mm. So in a certain sense, uh, the thing I tend to say is that um, these are pretty hard cases, Japan, Germany, Jap uh, and Great Britain. 
These are major powers that have their own capabilities. And so it's a really hard case for air power that Duhay never makes. Mm. He says he's writing about uh, Italy. And mm. we're so fascinated with his theory that we began to apply it elsewhere. So we have to at least see, you know, mm. Duhay would say, wait a second, I never said this. And if you look at World War II, it happened just like I said it would. Mm. Okay. Now that being said, uh, the broader criticisms I, I think are justified. Um, let's go to the let's go to the Vietnam War, right? So the Vietnam War, why do we have Rolling Thunder? We have Rolling Thunder because Johnson says we will not invade North Vietnam. Why? Because we had invaded Korea and it had it had resulted in escalation. Okay, so what we're effectively doing is constraining the type of war that we're allowed to bomb mm -hmm. and the type of punishment that's used is very restrictive to limit the number of civilian casualties in Hanoi and against the North Vietnamese compared to what the capability was. So you're not actually using the instrument that Duhay says that you have to use for punishment. Um, and so you're being very re restrictive in that regard. And then you're also going against um, you know, a, a nation with the North Vietnamese, uh, you know, they've already stayed in the fight against the Japanese. They've already stayed in the fight against uh, the French. The reason they're there is because they're a powerful uh, state as well. Okay, so I'm gonna leave it to my, uh, the other panelists to go ahead and jump on your side of it, but I did wanna give punishment some of it its due. Oh. That's fair, that's fair. <laughs> Tim, go ahead, please. Um, yeah, people who engaged in strategic bombing in World War II, they were surprised that it didn't achieve the um, the population effects, the capitulation by the civilian population, as these civilians find themselves as as combatants all of a sudden. Um, but it turns out there's this resolve, and part of that is due to uh, human nature. Maybe part of it is due to the political culture and the organization of a, of, a, of a state and its ability to communicate to its people and to amplify their resolve and their resilience. Um, so yeah, that that is something where it is difficult to predict when you're talking about how individuals and states and cultures are going to react. And, and it's not surprising that those that predictions are often wrong. Something I, I wanted to mention regarding this use of technology in, in previously unimaginable ways in the Second World War, you know, at the beginning of the war, as we're developing this strategic bombing capability, and it, people and in the late 1930s, they weren't visualizing so much of this, this mass carnage, this firebombing in Germany or this firebombing of Japan. And I think if you had asked most military officers, they would have found that um, something that uh, they wouldn't identify with. They wouldn't see themselves as doing. Yet in just a few short years, the institution is, the air power institution is all in to do that, uh, be it the uh, U.S. Army Air Forces or the Royal Air Force. Um, so it's, it's interesting how this combination of technological capability and political circumstance can really shift what an organization uh, and what a nation is willing to do and willing to tolerate in order to achieve victory, whatever that is. And in this case, it was unconditional victory. And that 
basically made an open playing field for a no limits total type of war. It tells us something about ourselves and our the maybe the naive expectations we have about technology up front and how we're going to use it, because that can be dramatically different as the context changes in a short amount of time. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, uh, John, if I could come back to a remark that you made uh, earlier, I uh, just wanted to echo it. You mentioned that sometimes strategic bombing can be used by the target government to mobilize its own population. There's lots of evidence for this. Now, whether it's successful or not, that's a more complicated question. But just to offer one example, the uh, strategic, the firebombing of Dresden uh, killed, uh, estimates vary, between 25,000 and 35,000 civilians. The Nazi government claimed at the time that 250,000 civilians had been killed because they mm -hmm. believed in the mobilizing capacity of civilian deaths from strategic bombing. Now you could disagree whether that's accurate or not, but it certainly is a commitment on the part of Nazi Germany that they were willing to essentially concede vulnerability to strategic bombing because they perceived a value in mobilizing their population. And, you know, so that's a lesson that just it echoes exactly what you're talking about. And it's another worthwhile example because this was a European population. I think, you know, Tim made some excellent uh, remarks on the difference between societies and leadership. Um, if a European society is willing to do this, that brings it a little closer to home and perhaps is a lesson that uh, that we should reflect on. Mm. The, the, you know, the thing that I always think about uh, in, in terms of this debate, because it, it's one of theory of victory, but it's also one of allocation of resources. I think about that period of time right before D-Day when um, it was Air Marshal Harris and, Eisen and General Eisenhower having this big argument in terms of where we use the resources. Do we keep strategic bombing on the cities or do we pull the assets to, to use on tactical targets so that we achieve an operational effect around the, the Normandy beachhead? And it went all the way up to Churchill and you know Churchill eventually sides with, with Eisenhower. But I see the same echoes of this essentially allocation of resources and what's going to achieve the greatest effect today in terms of there are in, you know, the, the, the former Air Force officers here will, 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 <laughs> will take this for what it is, but there are some elements in the Air Force that are like, oh, no, 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 this is, we do, this is, we're going to have a strategic effect with these assets. We don't want to hit tactical stuff. That's not going to achieve an effect. So it's kind of a war fighting, it's a philosophical argument in some ways. Is that, Phil, is that a fair, you know, assessment? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, Air Force doctrine has long had um, the uh, since since the foundations of uh, the Army uh, Air Forces and on into the Air Force is this idea that deep strike has much more of effect than localized strike. That close air support is a you know a tertiary priority compared to uh, deeper strikes, and so I th I think that is uh, relevant. Also, there is a, a tendency, uh, I have to say, I was a, a, an A-10 pilot and I uh, conducted close air support for decades in support of Marines and, and soldiers. And there is a tendency for soldiers and the Marines not to be able to see over the next hill. It's a geographical fact that you can't see over the next hill. And so there is this tendency not to see the effects that go past the line of sight of whatever your sensors are. And so there is this trade-off. And there's a trade-off between today uh, and the future. You know, I was in a bunch of limited wars where I was at very little risk 
compared to the soldiers or Marines that were on the ground that were at much higher risk and their war was total. And so I totally under, uh, understand their requirement for having aircraft overhead or feeling that that was an appropriate use uh, of, of uh, air power. Um, at some point, I would like us to talk a little bit about air superiority because we've not necessarily talked about that and the impact that has on the ability to project power, not just air power, uh, but also uh, surface forces. And so you talked oh, about decisiveness and decisiveness and victory, you know, but quite often, uh, a lot of times in wars, it's more important not to be defeated than it is to actually gain your war aims. And so you could point to World War II and say the Battle of Britain uh, was decisive for Britain because it uh, it was a major component along with the uh, Battle of the Atlantic, which also you could argue is an air power war, um, were critical to saving the British Isles. And so if we stop looking in a very positive terms in terms of victory and talk about how air power can deny defeat, you can actually achieve aims that may be even more important than what your war goals, positive war goals are. Uh, yeah, great, great point. Tim, let's let's shift to you. Any, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I think um, this notion of air superiority that, that Phil brought up, um, I think our perceptions are going to have to change what that uh, what that means, what our expectations are. We lost air superiority for a time uh, in Mosul uh, in operation in coalition operations there, mostly involving Iraqi ground forces. Um, and that is not uh, uh, something that that we're happy to admit, um, nor that we expected. ISIS was using drones. They were dominating the, uh, the air in a local theater. I think that's kind of a harbinger. Uh, and we've seen subsequent manifestations of that where the drones are getting through, the cruise missiles are getting through uh, in Ukraine and Russia, in targets, uh, you know, an oil refinery in Saudi Arabia being struck by Yemen and 2019. Um, so I think it's it's altering what our, what air superiority means or what our expectations are are going to be for that. And that's going to really challenge um, the Air Force as an institution, uh, as well as the uh, the sister services as well. So I'm, that's something I'm curious to see is how our how technology is going to shape our thinking and how our thinking is going to be lagging behind technological changes. Interesting point. Uh, Andrew, go ahead, please. Yeah, I uh, I think Phil makes an excellent point. We need to not become solely focused on the offensive capabilities of air power, but see what else it can contribute. Uh, with sincere apologies for coming back to Ukraine again, but it's it's in the in one's mind, of course. Uh, I came across a phrase in an article on air power in Ukraine that said, uh, "stalemate as an indication of importance," and it essentially was arguing that. Neither side has the advantage in air power between Ukraine and Russia, but that nonetheless is an endorsement of the importance of air power, the fact that both value it enough that they are trying to hold it in reserve and refrain from making any strong commitment that could make them vulnerable in the way that Britain could have made it itself vulnerable in World War II during the Battle of Britain by misappropriating air resources. You know, so I think that's an excellent point, the need to think about the defensive role as well. Yeah, so uh, it's a good segue. I'm glad, let's let's go to Ukraine. 
I read a, um, I forget if somebody around here sent it out, but there was, there was a criticism put forth about, you know, the Russian Air Force for not destroying the Ukrainian Air Force on day one. And uh, one of the counterpoints to that was talking about the, the concept of uh, doctrine. It, it's, and, and, you know, uh, Phil and Tim will correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's our Air Force doctrine to say, hey, yeah, you know, destroy the IADS network, take out the enemy air force, and then you can bomb whatever you want to. But that's not necessarily ever been Soviet or Russian doctrine. Is, is that, Phil, is that, is that fair? Uh, well, we still have, uh, so I've done some research and writing on at least the Battle of Kiev, which is the opening uh, battle. And, and actually I had a Ukrainian air defense uh, officer as one of the students here before. And so I've been able to talk to him a little bit about the actual battle itself. And, you know, the Russians actually, the first week of the, the air war, or the war did gain air superiority and were able to use TAC air overhead. Um, what actually happened is it appears that the jamming capability was so good for the Russian Air Force that they actually jammed the Russian Army. The Russian Army couldn't actually communicate and actually invade in it. And after about three or four days, uh, they had to turn off their jammers. Uh, that took, it took about a, a, a week for the Ukrainian uh, air defenses. And here, air superiority, we tend to have a U.S. mindset of air to air. And mm -hmm. primarily, that is not what air superiority is. It's surface to air. It's air to air to surface is typically how the battles are, are fought. Rarely do you get air to air engagements. Uh, typically, they're surface to air missile engagements. Uh, and we rarely talk about what Tim's kind of talking about is the lower level fight, the AAA, the man pads that get launched all the time, right? So uh, my understanding is that the Russians actually had pretty good intelligence. They were trying to do a preemptive strike. Uh, they were thwarted in part because of Western uh, intervention and Ukrainian military forces that actually repositioned all the uh, mobile targets, and that largely saved the Ukrainian uh, air defenses. Without that initial move, we may have seen a very different air war, with, which uh, could have very easily translated into a very different ground war. And because what we saw was a stalemate in the air, and largely we've seen the ground operations proceed, uh, you know, kind of antiquated in terms of fronts. Uh, that feel uh, much more like World War One, World War Two, than the type of uh, battles that we've seen during the Cold War or after. Hmm. So, so wow. So you're saying they actually did make an effort to try and yeah. and do wow. Yeah, and then I, I would say that what we saw over the uh, last summer was because of the high attrition levels to the Russian Air Force, we saw this transition. Uh, they stopped trying to do day day strikes. They went to the Su-34s for night strikes. They started losing those too. And we see this transition from manned aircraft to the uh, the the uh, guided missile missiles and the drone strikes, uh, which Tim has, has written quite, quite a bit. So the air wars continued. To me, what's fascinating is at first it's a combined arms campaign that, that we've talked about is defeated. And then the Russians transition to a punishment strategy against Ukrainian, um, you know, infrastructure. We've seen targeting of the electricity and grid. Uh, so they've effectively gone to a strategy that we know is less effective, but they've gone to it because that's the only strategy available to them to continue to impose cost upon the Ukrainians. Do we think the Russians think this strategy is going to 
uh, work more than their previous strategy? Uh, probably not, but it's what they have the viable, you know, uh, strategy is all about picking the least worst strategy, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's kind of the situation they're in. Interesting. Uh, Tim, we'll go to you next. Yeah, I am um, reminded about uh, how the U.S. Air Force really puts a lot of intellectual energy into this notion of, of strategic attack, and it has a whole doctrine document on strategic attack. Uh, the Russians were looking to use strategic attack to have that, you know, that decisive effect that, you know, create that systemic shock that that cripples uh, the enemy and political objectives are met. Uh, clearly, that uh, hasn't been the case, and they're resorting to alternative strategies just to be doing something and to maybe be losing less ground uh, until they find what works. But in Air Force doctrine, there's this great line that says, what will what uh, worked in the past will work in the future, but not in the same way. Mm. And that, that's we could tease apart that that uh, declaration. Um, uh, it has some problems with it, but at least there's acknowledgement that, hey, this notion of what causes causes a systemic shock uh, in the past, um, if it's able to happen and Air Force thinks, yes, you can always create this strategic attack, a decisive strategic attack and systemic disruption may or may not be true, but the Air Force at least acknowledges it may not happen in the same way uh, as it has happened in the past. So I read that and it's this fairly new, it's this revised version. I thought, okay, good for them for recognizing that we're not sure what the future context of a fight is politically and technologically and what will work and what won't work. The Russians are embroiled in that very lesson right now, desperately searching for something that will work. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians, with help from the outside, is, have been experimenting with all kinds of different things, as Andy alluded to. Um, uh, I'm reminded of uh, the use of uh, these Turkish drones, these Bayraktar drones that were very effective in this uh, a previous conflict with uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, and now they're being imported in Ukraine, um, causing a lot of problems for uh, uh, for the Russians, creating some opportunities for the Ukrainians, showing a lot of vulnerabilities of this slow-moving drone technology as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating sort of microcosm of this evolving technology and ideas about what works. Mm, fascinating. Well, I, I'm in no position to criticize the Air Force because Marine Corps believes we can storm any beach. So, you know, <laughs> thank you. Uh, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, it, just coming back to the question of why Russia chose a strategy, it, it might be worth keeping in mind as he transitioned from being prime minister to being president of Russia in late 1999 and 2000, uh, his first serious military campaign was the conquest of uh, Chechnya. And at the time, it had a population of estimates vary, but around 1.1 million. Uh, and, you know, it was an example of a punishment campaign times 10. You know, he the place was leveled, turned into a humanitarian disaster, and the strategy in a, a, an ugly and villainous way worked. And I think this is what he's trying to apply to Ukraine. But the huge difference is Ukraine's population uh, estimates center around 40, 41 million people. It is also the largest country with borders entirely within Europe. 
And these are two tremendous differences that make it a, it, it is the most serious foreign policy endeavor that Vladimir Putin has ever engaged in. And so that's why this is likely to prove to be a great example of how a strategy that worked in a completely different environment many years ago did not work at all when applied to Ukraine, as I, I would argue we're seeing right now. It, it, so let me let me ask you a follow on that one, Andrew. Like it, the goal for for Chechnya and, and Dagestan was was somewhat punitive, if I recall. Whereas it seems like the political aim for Ukraine is annexation. Why would you want to flatten and destroy something you you plan to annex or, you know, in best case scenario? Okay, that's a great question. And I'm proud to say I don't think like Vladimir Putin. However, (laughs) um, I'm not sure. He certainly demonstrated a willingness to do this. You know, you've seen uh, pictures of Bakhmut and other places. Um, It's unclear. He's not uh, he's not taking over the country in a way that one would if one wanted to be seen as an amiable occupier. You've read about uh, incidents that are certainly going to be charged uh, as war crimes in the years coming ahead. So I don't know. Hmm. Um, I would certainly point out, you know, that when I mentioned the differences in scale, um, he hasn't been able to engage in the sorts of leveling campaigns that he was able to engage in in Chechnya. Um, but it does seem to be a strategy that um, he's uh, he's he finds appealing in this circumstance. It's just the Russian military does not have the military capability uh, to engage in that level of destruction in such a large country. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Phil, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to add on that that strategy did work in Syria against the rebels. And so he used punitive strikes. Uh, now, he did have air superiority and was relatively effective in going after rebel supporters. And so that strategy, you know, he takes that, he tries to apply it, but he's in it, as uh, uh, Andrew points out, Ukraine is not Syria and it's definitely not Syrian rebels. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Any, Tim, any thoughts on this? One? No, I, I find myself concurring with that. Um, the, Outsiders view these uh, Syrian rebels much differently than Ukrainian forces. I mean, there's it's a world of cultural and political difference. So um, I think that's an important point to bring up. Yeah. All right. Well, that's probably a good segue in terms of um, as a wrap up question here. Um, other contemporary challenges that we have both currently and what we see potentially on the horizon and the best strategic use of air power. Is it, uh, again, is it, is it this strategic weapon that can win wars for us and, and uh, compel an adversary to um, uh, you know, achieve whatever political effect we want? Or is it um, something we use in, in terms of an instrument in our domain planet, in our, in our joint domain to enable uh, a political victory? And what is the best use of, of it for the future? Uh, so, uh, Andrew, why don't we go ahead and start this one with you? Okay, I think you've heard a lot of pessimism today about the ability to use air power to achieve strategic aims, and I certainly embrace that. But it's it's important to have it in a deterrent capacity, um, and potentially in a, uh, for uh, defensive use. But I I would just uh, reiterate the notes of skepticism you've heard throughout, and I think they're justified that. Um, when countries have thought that air power and air power alone could achieve aims, they've usually um, found themselves proven wrong. And when it, when they've turned out to be right, 
um, they've they've been in instances that one would not want to repeat necessarily, and I I might leave it at that. Mm. Awesome. Okay, uh, Tim, please. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think one way to look at it is air power is necessary to achieve strategic objectives, but it's insufficient or, or likely will be insufficient. I can't make a declarative statement about the future, but air power will likely be necessary, but insufficient. And as long as we understand that and, and think about how to optimize that combination of forces to, to command the commons, you know, then I think that's, that's what we want to, the attitude and the perspective we want to develop with our students here in a professional military education institution. And then the other thought I had about this is, yeah, um, air power creates options for political leaders, um, drones and other uh, weapons. They are, uh, I refer to them sometimes as vehicles of political expediency. They give you the option to do something rather than do just nothing. Sometimes doing nothing is the best option, but at least it gives you the option to get something done. Unmanned systems lower that political threshold in certain ways. Uh, it's easier to um, uh, conduct a strike with an unmanned system in terms of risk, and it's also politically more palatable to uh, operate um, unmanned systems out of a certain area and into another area. And that's something new that we've discovered in the past couple of decades, uh, uh, really. Then the final final thing I'll I'll say about this in terms of kind of ideas to consider about air power in the future is just a few months ago we saw the oldest form of air power remind us of something and that was a balloon floating high above the United States and it attached to it was some very exquisite technology and something I try to get across to my students is that. Uh, to the degree that there are patterns in technological development and in air power, one of them is it is often the recombination of already existing technology in new and innovative ways. You see that with attaching a hellfire to a predator drone and all of the, the doors and windows that opened up because those hellfires could now go through doors and windows. We, um, uh, we want our students to kind of uh, um, uh, think loosely, uh, not in an undisciplined way, but in an un, uh, in a way where they're not uh, uh, siloing their perspectives uh, and think about different combinations, not just of technology, but of ideas. Uh, and air power helps us think about uh, uh, the value of not just technology, but ideas. Great points. Thank you. Uh, Phil, we'll end with you. Uh, all right. Well, first, it's good to hear a U-2 pilot bring up uh, high-altitude balloons. Uh, so uh, that's good. Did you uh, see that I've, got two, I've got two thoughts. One of them is um, it, it has to do with the international system. So uh, until the end of the Cold War, we largely thought about wars uh, since World War II as deterring them. Uh, as uh, when we did think about the big questions, it was about extending deterrence to NATO and preventing the, the Soviet from invading. Even in a broader grand strategy sense, when we think about the Korean War and we think about the Vietnam War, it's in this idea of containing the expansion of communism to some degree. And then the Cold War ends, and then the U.S. gets this period of time where there's not 
competition. And we go on the offensive and we start about winning wars for a variety of reasons. We're coming out of that period of time. And one of my concerns is adjusting our students and our military leaders to the fact that they're not unconstrained anymore. Maybe we can't think about winning wars or applying air power independently or military forces independently because of the broader concerns that we have with the international uh, environment and other near peer competitors. So reframing how we think about uh, military force, I think, is particularly important now as we see competition uh, with, with, say, China. Uh, the second part is uh, I took on the role of kind of talking about strategic bombing and what it can achieve. But really, strategic bombing, particularly conventional strategic bombing, largely doesn't achieve uh, its objective. And I would argue any single instrument of power doesn't give your opponent um, too many dilemmas. In other words, it gives it opportunities to be able to adapt. And so one of the real advantages of combined arms, uh, along with other instruments of power, is it gives your opponent too many problems. Uh, I always talk about the example of the invasion in 2003. We actually caught the invasion in 2003, even though the air war started in June of 2002. Uh, and Saddam Hussein dispersed his ground forces because he was more concerned about or thought it was more likely to have airstrikes than a ground invasion, which made the ground invasion a lot easier than it otherwise would have. In other words, we put Saddam Hussein on the horns of a dilemma. Does he disperse and hide against airstrikes or does he concentrate and maneuver against ground forces? Those are the kind of challenges that we want the opponent to have. We want to use all the instruments of our powers to give our opponents too many dilemmas so that we can uh, coerce them, or if we have to go and use brute force war, we can win those wars. Mm. Great points. Excellent. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Um, everyone, that's all we have time for today. It's been an interesting and fascinating discussion as always, and we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thanks, Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thank you.